You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Well, welcome. If you haven't met me before, uh, my name is Coy. I'm the associate pastor here. And it's so good to see you in this wonderful, warm Sunday afternoon. And something that you may not know about me is that for nearly 10 years, uh, my mum owned a, a Vietnamese cuisine restaurant called Charlie Shack in a popular spot in Adelaide, the, the Adelaide's CBD's Chinatown, actually. And being the only child of the owner, my mum, other restaurant owners that often saw me walking around Chinatown would often ask, are you going to take over from your mum one day? Are you the heir to her business? And when I say heir kids, I'm not talking about the air we breathe, but air as in H-E-I-R, which is someone who inherits something and, and will take over. But I'd often tell these people, no, right? And my mum, when she was asked, would give them a hard no, right? probably because I'd be the last person on earth that she would ever want to take over a business, maybe because I was likely the worst worker that she's ever had. Um, For example, there was a time, this is probably my favorite example, there was a time where I brought out a bowl of noodle soup for a customer, and when I gave it to them, I put it on the table, I didn't realize that my thumb was halfway in their soup. (laughs) The heir to Charlie Shack, everyone, right? I bet you now if you're over at my house, you're going to be watching if I'm bringing out, your, bringing out food for you or watching my thumb. We're in our second week of our series titled How Seeing Jesus Changes Us. And last week, we looked at what was core to the Apostle Paul's plea to Titus uh, as a newly appointed leader of the churches of Crete, that Jesus is grace and that his grace not only saves us, but trains us in godliness. See, last week was important in setting the foundation in understanding the grace of God appearing in Jesus and how this grace motivates believers to change, to be a a zealous people for good works. And it's this week in our passage today that Paul continues this theme, but this time he expands on what he has said previously, with Paul going in depth of what a life of doing good looks like and the impact that it has. And I think what set up Today's passage is what Paul actually says right at the end of what was just read, right at the end of our passage, that in verse 7, as believers, we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
And it's this title of being heirs that drives the sermon today. Because what an heir is, is a person who receives an inheritance. And as those who have been saved by the grace of Jesus, by faith in him, it means all that is is Christ's is ours. Paul says in his letter to Romans in chapter 8 that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. It means we have a privilege in sharing in Christ's inheritance. It's an inheritance that not only includes our salvation, but one that includes everything included in eternal life. But being an heir doesn't only mean that we receive an inheritance, but also means that we are to continue on the work of the one whom gave his inheritance. Because our inheritance hasn't been fully yet realized as we wait for Jesus' return. In the here and now, we continue Christ's good work. In other, other words, we are to live as a kingdom people while we wait for his coming kingdom. So Paul in our passage wants believers to have in mind three, three clear reminders as we go living this out. That we, one, ought to remember our conduct. Two, that we ought to remember where we came from. And three, that we remember that it's completely God's doing. But before we go on there, let's pray together. (laughs) Father God, we thank you for your word in Titus. We thank you uh, that it is your word that challenges and encourages and convicts us, Lord. May it be your words that remain in my friend's hearts today, Lord. Uh, Take away any words of my own. And we thank you that you've blessed us with with your words. In Jesus' name, amen. As Paul has us thinking about what it means for us to be heirs of the future hope, he first tells us to think about our conduct. And in particular, in regards to leaders and authorities, you know, the governing bodies of our society, with Paul telling Titus to remind his churches to be submissive to such people. And it's funny, it feels like this topic is like Google trending uh, this year for Melbourne West in particular. A few months back in uh, 1 Peter 2, we dug into the verses which essentially said the same thing, to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor or to governors which Peter spoke about in regards to persecution. Then a few weeks ago, in light of the events surrounding our church, our chairman and the Essendon Football Club, Pastor Luke had us thinking about the culture around us and what submission looks like. And I remember he used the great line to obey when we can, disobey when we must, which I think is just as helpful in understanding what Paul says here. Because in Paul wanting believers to show good conduct, by being submissive to rulers and authorities, Paul is thinking in the context of what we had talked about last week, that as a people who have been changed by grace and are now zealous for good works as Christians, our responsibility of bringing about good in this world includes what the Apostle Paul says here, an obedience to those whom God has placed in governing authority over us. See, Paul has said something like this to us before. Where in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And just as was said in the previous sermons that we've heard on this topic and passages that have talked about this same thing, Paul isn't implying some sort of passive subservience where Christians are never to stand up for anything and agree with everything that the authorities put out. That's not what Paul's saying. But as I mentioned earlier, I think it's wise when we obey, when we can, and only disobey when we must. And the musts are when these authorities command us to do things which would require us to disobey God, things that would be against the law of the Lord. But even then, I don't think Paul wants us to be so quick on the trigger 
I think of his own context that Paul writes his letters, where the governing authority in his life was the evil emperor Nero, who was doing all sorts of wicked to Christians. And yet Paul never made the call for Christians to be unlawful or to overthrow Nero to protect the countless believers who were actually being martyred by this Nero. So I think defying rulers and authorities can happen, but more so in rare situations. But in most situations, Paul's call to action is that as Christians, as we think about our conduct to those in authority over us, we ought to submit. And it's quite intentional that he would say this because on the island of Crete, where Titus was going to lead all these Christians at the churches, the Cretans were notorious for being quite wild impatient and quarrelsome to all authority. A hundred and 150 BC Greek historian named Polybius would describe them as always involved in insurrections, murders and internal wars. So Paul tells Titus to remind the Christians of Crete of their conduct to an unbelieving world, that as heirs of the future hope, they were meant to continue on the good work of Christ. So the gospel should not be identified with their inability to submit to authority. Because if that were the case, then there would be a few problems that would arise out of that. The first being that with Christianity at that time being quite a small movement for the church to be under suspicion of being a counter political movement in those days, it would have done great harm to the gospel witness. People would think it's just another one of those many groups who are trying to fight the power or to overthrow the patriarchy. And so the essence of Christianity would be lost, hampering the church and gospel spread. But another bigger problem that we need to think about that would arise from this is that the watching world around them would seriously question their conduct because they would be asking of the non-submitting Christians How can we believe that you submit to your God's authority when you clearly show that you can't submit to anyone? And this is such an important thought to have because when it comes to people subjecting themselves to something such as civil authority, it really does require us to examine almost every aspect of our daily life from small everyday things such as following the traffic laws to more noticeable things like paying your taxes, to more weighty things such as freedom of religion. We can't escape being under some sort of authority. And the reality is that there will be times where we face unreasonable standards or officials that hinder us in how we go about life. And yet the temptation for us is to immediately assume that if authorities or rulers aren't reasonable to what we feel or we believe, our obligation is our obligation to submit to them becomes completely void. We essentially sever our ties with them. We posture ourselves as opposers to those in authority. So we we don't live subjected to them or or even bother to keep basic civil laws. The temptation is that we go down the path of being a people of lawlessness. But Paul wants us to see that our conduct matters because the reality is the outside world is watching. A while ago, I remember I I saw a broken down car on the side of the road. So I decided to help this car and I 
what a guy, right? But it's probably the only time I've ever done it in my life. <laughs> but I stopped to give him a ride and he had ran out of petrol. So I stopped to give him a ride to go to the petrol station. Um, and he was so grateful. And you know what he said to me? He goes, mate, the amount of cars that drove right by me that had the Jesus fish on them, I thought they were supposed to be the ones that helped me first. I tell him, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. The fact of the matter is Christians are often in the spotlight. As people who proclaim to be followers of Jesus, our lives are often on blast, even to those we don't even realise. And it makes sense because we are a people who claim to follow a man who's called himself the way, the truth, and the life. That we are a people who have been called to share this good news to others of him saving us from our own sinful, evil ways. So it shouldn't surprise us that we are surrounded by a world that watches us. Around us is a society that needs the gospel of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that we are the people who've been given the privilege, the responsibility to make Jesus known, that we are heirs of this future hope. Meaning as people who belong to the kingdom of God, we have a mission, a calling, to obey what has been charged of us, to continue on doing a good work in this world that others may too see this grace that has saved and changed us, that those looking in may be drawn to this same future hope. And so what our passage does is remind us that as Christians, yes, the world will indeed look at your lives with what seems like a microscope at times. So for those who claim to have been changed by the grace of Jesus, who claim to now live like him, these watchful eyes are looking for that same grace from you. If our conduct is one that often opposes authority, anytime we don't agree with it, the person looking in will wonder, well, whose authority do they follow then outside of their own? Because what usually happens when we don't follow those we disagree with is then only we only honor and respect those we do find agreeable and while it's human nature that we would draw and respect those we align with and what we believe if we completely disregard those we don't find agreeable and only honor those that we do then our growing in the gospel will most certainly become stunted why because if we can't even submit to the governing authorities that god has placed in our everyday lives Who's to say the same won't happen to any of those in authority in your life? Let's say the church. Because if we only honour and respect those that we find agreeable, what happens when the pastor or leader who is called to minister over you with the gospel needs to correct you and you don't agree with it? Will you no longer be subject to them, no longer honour or respect them, even if what they're saying is helpful to you? See, theologian R. Kent Hughes says, if Christians routinely operate in the mode of respecting only the authority with which they agree or that does not trouble them, then the minister of the gospel who must correct, rebuke and exhort will soon have no authority. As heirs of the future hope, our conduct matters when it comes to our relationship with those in authority. Again, I want to remind us here that this is not a call to follow blindly without any discernment. We can and should still voice 
dis- strong disagreements or even do everything lawful to get God- godless authorities removed from positions of power. Absolutely. But what Paul wants us to remember is that our conduct absolutely matters how we go about this. Our instinct shouldn't be to be rebellious lawbreakers who might even respond evil with evil. But as a people who are part of our society, with the world all looking in, we must be a people, be a people who are obedient, subject to those God has put in positions of power, that we are to submit to laws. We show f- that faith in Jesus doesn't produce lawlessness. So when the world looks in, they see a kingdom that looks attractive. This is essentially what happened to the Philippian jailer which you might have heard this story before. The Philippian jailer in Acts, in Acts chapter 16, where the apostle Paul and Silas were singing and praising God in their jail cell. They were prisoners. And an earthquake shook the prison and the doors opened and their chains were broken. In that moment, Paul and Silas could have absolutely bolted out of there. They are, we're free. God has set us free. Let's get out of here. But they remained and they saw the jailer And they saw that he was about to end his life in fear that the jailers had escaped. Prisoners had escaped. But Paul and Silas didn't. And instead, they comforted that jailer. In the end, baptizing him as he gave his life to Christ. What an amazing example of how two faithful men of God didn't show lawlessness in an opportunity, and they so could have, but rather... They showed a profound obedience, which turned a watching eye in that moment, looking in to see and know the grace of God. I love how R.C. Sproul, uh, an author and pastor, sums it. He says, we are to seek the welfare of the city in which we are exiled. We are not of this world, but we do not turn our backs on this world as we obey the state and do good to all people. We illumine the way that leads to life eternal. And I love the quote too, because not only does he call us to obey the state, that the world may see us as heirs of a future hope, but notice that he says, and do good to all people, which is exactly what Paul calls us to do. In verse 2, it says, we're to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy. Get this, towards all people. This conduct that we're talking about here is to be for all people. And it's quite a list of attributes. Look what it says. In our conduct, we are to be ready for every good work. In other words, when given opportunities to do good For the sake of others, you do so out of love and obedience to Christ. In our conduct, we're to speak evil of no one, that we aren't to malign others, whether governing official of our our very own neighbour, which I admit is hard, especially when it's talking about our governing authorities. It's very easy for me to talk, to malign them. Paul continues that we're to avoid quarrelling. The Greek word used here is amachos, which translates to not a fighter, basically not being macho. Paul here doesn't mean that we don't fight or stand up for principles and convictions that we might believe to be right, but we shouldn't take offence easily to those who don't. 
He also exhorts us to be gentle, showing perfect courtesy to all people. In other words, to be kind and considerate to the unbelieving world around us. It means that even when we're wronged by outsiders, we respond with grace and kindness, patiently bearing the wrongs done to us. See, after reading through this list, it looks quite passive of us, doesn't it? Like it almost makes our conduct as Christians to be a people who just completely get walked all over. But I think the real intention from Paul isn't in fact a weakness, but rather showing a greater strength in living this way because it produces more good in this world. Humility and grace over pride and lawlessness. Which is funny, that is exactly how you would describe Jesus' conduct while he walked this earth. Humility and grace over pride and lawlessness. So our conduct is to be one that is ready for every good work, showing perfect courtesy toward all people because the world hasn't yet seen the grace that has appeared. They haven't yet experienced the saving grace of God as seen as in Jesus on the cross. So as author R. Kent Hughes says, this is not doormat Christianity, passively letting people trample all over you, but it is rather the exercise of the greater strength of not responding to evil with evil. For the good of others, those in the church, including its leaders, must recognise how disappointing and defeating it is for the people of God to be at odds or to speak ill of each other or not to be considerate of one another and the world. This is about what is good for others, that our conduct not only reflects our own status as people who have been saved by grace, but our conduct is beneficial for the eyes that are looking in at our lives. Because the world looking in knows very well everything that is not on this list. The world knows full well how to be domineering, rebellious. The world knows full well how to serve the self. The world knows full well how to slander and malign others. The world knows how to be argumentative and prideful. The world knows how to be harsh and uncourteous. The world, as we know, is full of sin. As Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 said, the Lord saw that the wick, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so as a people who have been changed by the gospel and are now shaped by the gospel as heirs of a future hope, our conduct is there to help win over others who live in a different pattern to that of believers, to win them over to Christ. So when we humbly submit as good citizens of authority of today, when we humbly care for our communities, when we humbly love others with a mindset of peace over personal gain, the watching world sees this and will ask, where does this humility come from? They'll ask, what is it about a Christian that they would conduct themselves in such a way? See, stories like the Philippian jailer are the wonderful examples about how our witness can truly affect another person looking in. But while there are plenty of examples of such stories as those, like the Philippian jailer, there are also just as many examples on the other side where people looking in, things turn sour. And so in our being heirs of a future hope, while our conduct matters, that it can play a part in winning people over to Christ. Paul wants to remind us also that it's not always smooth sailing. 
But even more, we need to be humble and gracious as those saved by Christ because to those watching eyes of the outside world, we need to remember that we were once those people looking in. That leads to my second point, that we ought to remember where we came from. See, I have a friend in ministry who for a long time, he's a pastor who had a long time, had been praying for his good friend to know Jesus. And there came a moment where this friend just had it like a crisis of existence. So my pastor friend spoke to him, really got to his level and, and talked about Jesus and his friend seemed really intrigued and interested in this. It just seemed like a great moment. Not long after, he found out that his friend had decided to become a Mormon, which of course was quite a shock. And honestly, a disappointment for my pastor friend. He would tell me of his frustration. But it can be frustrating, can't it, when we do our best to live faithfully that others around us may see or we share the good news of Christ to others and they either leave unaffected, confused or worse, hostile. And perhaps you felt the same where sometimes that frustration grows into something more like like anger or even ill will towards that person. Like you might think like, I can't believe he won't believe in Jesus. Can't he literally see that there's nothing else going on for him in his life? Can't he just accept it? Or fine, do whatever you want, believe whatever you want. I don't care anymore. Or why doesn't she just simply come to church with me? Why can't she just go? Is she seriously that dense? Like, come on, just go. It's not that hard. These are thoughts that I wish I could say that I haven't had before. But I think for many of us, the good of wanting people to know Jesus can easily become a temptation to lose the very grace that we received in Jesus. So we become impatient, angry, even aggressive sometimes in our conduct and being witnesses to those around us. We become hard on sinners, losing compassion in favour of forceful judgment. So Paul keeps us as believers grounded in the great reminder to remember where we came from, that we too were once exactly like those you are witnessing to. That as verse 3 says, we were once foolish, lacking wisdom and understanding. Maybe you thought that you knew the deepest answers to the world's biggest questions and none of those answers included God. Maybe that was you before that we were once disobedient, that there was a time maybe for you that the law of the government was the only law that you ever knew. So God's law meant nothing. So you lived for yourself and all the interests that you had, you just lived and did whatever you wanted. That we were deceived, not understanding the truth of the Bible. We were led astray. Perhaps you had found happiness and fulfillment once in your life in false promises, false beliefs, false people, false religions that we were slaves to various lusts and pleasures, addicted to things that brought us momentary pleasure, but long-term pain, that maybe sexual gratification, drinking drugs, and those pleasures were our God, that we had spent our lives in malice and envy. Maybe, uh, maybe there was a time for you where you would push others down, that you would go up in your workplace, or maybe you would badmouth another person out of jealousy and envy for their life, of their life, and that we were once hateful, holding on to grudges of people who hurt you, disregarding those who uh, were kind to you or meant no harm, wishing in your heart that that person would just go away for good. While in the first two verses, we heard a list of challenging and encouraging attributes that we ought to conduct ourselves in. Here in verse three, we get a list of hard to hear characteristics that best describe 
who we once were. And it's kind of hard to hear. But for some of us reading this list, it might not be so hard to hear because we may be thinking to ourselves, well, I was barely any of these things that were listed even before I was a Christian. I was a pretty good, I was a pretty good person. You know, I had good upbringing, didn't do drugs, didn't hate anybody, didn't believe in other religions. But even if you were maybe raised with Christian morals, but weren't a Christian yourself, the Bible reminds us that before we knew of the grace of God, before we were saved by faith in Jesus, we were all sinners. That inside our hearts, all these things listed were lurking, even if we don't think it was there on the surface. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Prior to knowing Christ, we have done all these things that are listed there. Outside of Jesus, no human can say that they are above this list. And so Paul wants all believers to remember that the person that you are currently witnessing to right now in your life, to every person whom you have shared the gospel to or hope to come to know Jesus, you were once exactly like them. You who were once foolish, disobedient, malicious, hateful, that's them now. We're made with the same stuff. So show them the love and grace that you have received in seeing Jesus. Pastor John Calvin says, Paul reminds the believers what sort of people they used to be. It is like saying, if people on whom God has yet to bestow the light of his faith are treated so harshly, you too once deserved to be treated in this harsh way. You would not have wanted anyone to be so unkind to you, so you should show the same moderation to others. In a simple way, treat others as you would like to have been treated before you knew of God's grace. Because they haven't yet seen the light of Christ. Don't expect them to meet you on your level, but go to theirs. I think why we're so tempted to become impatient, frustrated, and even judgmental when it comes to our witness to others is because deep down, there's something in us that believes that maybe we can change them. You know, we think about the many rom-com movies, you know, I I think I can change him. I can really change him. Like that is imprinted in our hearts that we are the ones who bring about, that we are the ones that can bring about this transformation in in their life, that it's completely our doing. So we get frustrated when it doesn't happen because we put the onus on us. We start to think perhaps we've failed or perhaps we haven't done enough. So we sort of have this sort of saviour complex where we feel like only we can save people and it makes us feel accomplished, have a sense of worth if we are able to do so. Which is where Paul's final words is the perfect reminder for this and perhaps the most important reminder for all of us today. And it's my final point that all of this is completely God's doing. See, in last week's sermon, I noted that what, one of the most crucial words in the passage was this small word for. And it helped us think because it helped us think about what was said before the direct passage. Well, today I want to know another small word, which proves not to be the only 
most crucial in the passage, but perhaps, not perhaps, but definitely the most wonderful, glorious word that we could read. And it's the word, but, which starts off verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Because with the word but, it means that the long list of ungodly traits in verse 4 that is described of those we witness to and describe how we all once were, that word but means that God intervened, that he didn't leave us foolish, he didn't leave us disobedient, led astray, enslaved, malicious, envious, hate-filled people, that God didn't leave us in our wretchedness. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, when Jesus God's own son came down. He saved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. We were dead to sin, every single one of us, but God intervened. Paul is reaffirming what he said in last week's passage making sure that every listener, every believer who has seen the grace of God appear in Jesus and has been saved by faith knows that it was completely God's doing. What it says in verse 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Our works, our good deeds, our our living good lives in this world, none of that plays a part in our salvation. But it was completely by the work of Christ on the cross, who in his grace died the death meant for us, paying our penalty, giving himself as a ransom for those who believe. That salvation is the basis of God's kindness, love and mercy. And so for us who have been saved completely by his grace, we're reminded that those on the other side who haven't yet experienced this They can't be saved by us. We are not their saviour, but we were all in need of rescuing. And only the grace of God appearing could accomplish that for us. As R. Kent Hughes says, when we recognise that we were rescued from a pit deeper than we could crawl from, that we were saved from a darkness greater than our light could penetrate, that we were delivered from sin greater than our resolve could control, Only then are we prepared to lead others. Such humility enables us to proclaim the gospel eye to eye with those who believe they will never measure up to the goodness they think we have attained by our resolution and strength of character. By Paul reminding us of what God, our Saviour, has done, he wants to drill in us that salvation comes only from the Lord. But even more, that change that change that comes from Jesus, Paul wants to remind us that that change that we've been talking about last week and this week, that that also comes from God. Because look what it says in verse 5, that he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Paul is saying that, the change that occurs in us isn't by our own volition or power, 
but it is the work of the Holy Spirit whom God had promised us. It is the work of God in us. He is the one who does the changing work. And he does so through the washing of regeneration. When we see the word regeneration in the Bible, it often refers to a new birth, to be born again. That when God saved us, we were raised to new life, raised from spiritual death, where eternal separation from God was meant for us to something, to spiritual life, where eternal glory with our Lord awaits. In short, while our first birth meant that we were dead in our sins, to us who have been saved by the grace of God, we have been made alive in our new birth, that we are spiritually alive in Christ. So as a regenerated people, we now live differently. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we now live in faith and holiness. And while this verse is quite debated amongst scholars and theologians because of the word washing, with some believing that it refers to a water baptism as a means of regeneration, essentially saying that baptism is necessary for salvation, uh, uh, what they call a baptismal regeneration, that life, basically what they're saying, that a life isn't actually changed until a person is baptised. I think most Reformed scholars, and what I think is more biblically accurate, is not the washing of regeneration as a means to baptism here, but more so a picture of God washing away the filth in our being born again. It uses the same metaphorical language in Ezekiel 16, which has God speaking about how he washes his people by his mercy where the washing refers to an inner purification God provides by grace that provides a new spiritual life for us. And I think this makes most sense in the context of our passage because as I've been saying last week and today, it's not our good things that, that, that cause us to be born again, but it's completely the kindness, love and free mercy of God who does this. So our physical baptism isn't what brings us a changed life but new birth comes completely from God by the grace of his son first, bringing righteous deeds after, not the other way around. But this isn't to push aside baptism because there is great significance in it. In fact, scripture commands us uh, to do so, those who know the grace of God, to get baptised. And I love how R.C. Sproul puts it, that it's the sign and seal of the God, of God's new covenant promises, a sign and seal of what we have received in faith. So while we may not agree with baptismal regeneration, we still hold that baptism is a real means of grace, wherein the Holy Spirit strengthens our faith and reminds us of the work of Christ. So let's get excited for those that we're getting baptized very soon in a few weeks time. Uh, a group of people who, if you hear their stories, you just know that they would agree that they're saved and changed lives was completely God's doing, not their own. And Paul reiterates that by saying even more that we are renewed by the Holy Spirit, that by the work of Christ, God in us, by the work of the Spirit, apologies, God in us, as a people who have been saved by grace in Jesus, there's an ongoing process in us, an inner renewal, a sanctification, we call it, that occurs after being born again where we're being made more and more into the likeness of our Saviour, Jesus. And this is such good news because after hearing about how our conduct matters to the world, it would feel so defeating if we knew that all of what I've just said was completely up to us. So defeating if by our own strength we had to train ourselves to be godly. 
If by our own efforts, we had to win those around us. If by our own power, we had to change our sin-stained hearts. If by our own works, we had to save ourselves. But Paul gives us the wonderful reassurance that both salvation and change comes from the God who loves you and knew you before the world was created. As verse 7 says, To those who are his, you have been justified by his grace, that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jesus has made us right, has made us righteous in the sight of God. And as his heirs, we have inherited his salvation and eternal riches. But while we wait for that future inheritance in the age to come, we can trust wholeheartedly that he will continue to do a good work in us now as his heirs, that he will give us the wisdom to live in good conduct, that he will give us the zeal to be ready for every good work, that he will give us the peace and assurance that we're not the ones who save, but he is. So trust that the Lord is at work in your life. You know, as I close, the best part in all this is while we aren't the ones who actually change the hearts of people, God would still do good, would have us do good in this world to reflect his goodness to a world that doesn't know him, that God will still use us to bring about his means of changing people. We get the privilege of playing a part as his heirs, that by us continuing Christ's work here of making him known, we get to see it become a reality right before our eyes. You know, I think of a gentleman I knew in Canada who attended the church that I served at when I was there. And he was somebody who was quiet, kept to himself. And God gave me the opportunity to get to know him, to build a friendship with him. And I discovered that he, he enjoyed smoking a lot of weed. That was probably why he was just always very quiet. And faith didn't really matter to him. He wasn't really a Christian. He was just going to church. He was just a very whatevs kind of guy. After I left Canada, I didn't hear from him for six years. Out of nowhere, no joke, he messaged me two weeks ago and he told me that now he is an assistant pastor at a church in Canada with his wife, hoping to support another church plant soon. And I'd learned that God had done a mighty work in his life in those six years and the spirit is at work in his life and in his ministry. It was clear, so clear, that this was completely God's doing in saving him and changing him. And while I don't know if I played much of a part in this immense change, I'm just grateful and I'm just thankful to God that he had placed me at this church at that time to have a friendship with this gentleman in the first place, that I can now see and hear of the wonderful things that the Lord has done in his life. What a joy and privilege that we get to see God work in us, through us, and around us as he brings about salvation and change in the lives of those in this world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have rescued us from the deepest pit by giving us your son, Jesus. Lord, as people who have seen you and are changed by you, may your spirit help us in how we live daily. Give us your wisdom in our conduct. Let us be mindful of our thoughts, words and deeds. 
as we live in a manner that reveals your goodness in the world. Especially in the hardest of times when the people who want to most know you when they won't surrender, help us be reminded of uh, who we once were to, that we needed a saviour and the light of life, that we may better be gracious and kind and merciful to those that we witness to. And Lord, we thank you that we can trust wholeheartedly that salvation and change comes only from you, that you are the God who saves and you are the God who does a changing work inside each and every one of us. May we live zealous to do your good, that others may see your good grace as seen in your wonderful Saviour Jesus. Thank you that we can call call ourselves your heirs to our blessed future hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.